At 252 pounds, he is indeed the wrestler who made Milwaukee famous, the one, the only, the crusher. Out of Paradise Valley, Arizona, at 268 pounds, the superstar, Billy Graham. The all-time great professional wrestling, weighing 322 pounds, Larry the Axe Hennings. A very flamboyant. Jesse, the body, and Cora. Beat. That's Mr. Beat. You announced me as Mr. Beat. Your thoughts, Mad Dog. All the men and all power in football. Here is Wahoo, that's Daniel. From Manchester, England, the British heavyweight wrestling champion, the man of a thousand and one holes, the great Billy Levinson. Weighing 254 I think Bird Ganya got his chance and took full advantage of it. Bird Ganya, and he isn't done yet. What I'd like to have right now, where the big boys play. This is where the big boys play, huh? This is where the big boys play. You're listening to Where the Big Boys Play, and this is uh, part two of our unprecedented three-part episode of uh, AWA in the 1980s. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, your pop culture home. <laughs> Does, has anyone made a... Uh, Chad, have you made your first pick? Yeah, I can't remember. Uh, I have not, and yeah. uh, I'm actually looking to see who I picked last time to see if I want to pick the same guy. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll pick the same guy. Um, I, I picked Larry Zbysko last time because, to me, he's a very interesting guy to talk about. Uh, I think a lot of times uh, you hear him as, you know, the, the fifth member of the Dangerous Alliance, somebody that would go install, uh, you know, kind of announcer in the late Nitro era if you uh, grew up in the Attitude era. But he's somebody that, while I still don't know if I'd... He, he's a guy I'd really have tough slotting in tears um, because I, I, I do I do know, I think, that I like him more than most. Um, but I understand he does have plenty of faults within his matches where he can get carried away with the stalling. Uh, he can... I don't, I don't necessarily know if he has enough... I think he has enough offense on top when he's in control... But I certainly wouldn't say he has an abundant at offense when he's uh, doing his face in peril segments. But he's always a guy I've been tremendously entertained with. And with the footage I've watched in the past year uh, between this set and his series with Bockwinkle and then the 1994 uh, series with Regal, he's somebody that's really kind of been elevated in my eyes from somebody that I kind of thought, oh, that's kind of one of them old, you know, veteran wrestlers of years past that'll just stall and was kind of in it to get a paycheck and run his mouth to uh, 
somebody I'd consider at least a good worker and on a very good day, I think he could have a great match. I'm going to come out and say right now, Chad, if Rick Martel to tier three, Zabisco is not making it onto the tiers. That's my uh, thought. Not even a tier four. Huh? No. no. Would, <laughs> Pete, Peter? Peter? Uh, I guess I'll go. I, I enjoy Zabisco. Uh, I, like, I like him as a promo. Uh, I like his ring work and doses. I thought his disc nine, I thought he had really strong matches with, uh, with, I thought he had really good one with Greg Gagne. He had a good one with Bachwinkle. Uh, um, the, the one with Gagne, I thought was tremendous. Uh, I, then I think I had like a three and three fourth star match. Uh, probably will probably make my top 60 or 70 in that range. That I, I, July 87 match. Let me look. I think so. I have yeah. it right here. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't yeah, think it actually has a date. Yeah, oh, it's just a lie. Yep. Yeah, I thought that was really good. Right. Well, I mean, uh, and he he was predominantly a heel on this side, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Much I, I, I don't even know. Uh, I don't think he had a baby face match. Yeah, was he set. a baby face? I don't think no. he was. Not at sure all. if he was ever a baby face in the AWA at all. No, uh, he, he's at least. he was a baby. He he debuted as a baby face as a uh, as a. Uh, Bruno's protege, as we know, Pete. <laughs> um, not in the AWA, though. But not in the AWA. He came in as a, as a heel, right? Straight yeah. away, yeah. yeah. yeah, I, yeah I actually... He had a gimmick for a bit, and then Larry Land gimmick. Peter, what were your thoughts on him? Um, I would be interested in... Um, I don't know if there was any sort of selection bias, I guess you would call it, with uh, Zabisco matches. If we just saw the best of the best... I'd be curious as to how he did in average matches, I guess. Was he a, a guy who stalled a lot and wasted a lot of time, um, but was able to turn it on when the moment arised? Or was he a guy who was just, he just never stalled as much as his reputation would have you believe? Um, I'd be curious to, he has me, it has me wanting to explore him more, let's put it that way. Yeah, I think we'd all agree that his best sequences matches here was with Bockwinkle, which had a really interesting dynamic because Bockwinkle turns face, and it's almost like it felt to me that Zabisco was kind of like Bockwinkle Jr. or like kind of like the young upstart taking on the master type thing, um, and I think those matches were really fun, uh, and. Uh, if I can remember right, that that's the one with the tremendous uh, pile driver in it as well. Yes, right? the uh, two twenty three nineteen eighty six match is the one that's four minutes uh, bell to bell, and uh, it's a match I have it ranked number forty one, and that that's kind of probably of this set. That's probably my uh, Jake Roberts versus Rick Martel type match where it's very tough for me to kind of give it an actual ranking. Uh, because it is only four minutes, but they cram so much action into that, and it does feature, I can't think right offhand, a better pile driver. Would those be the matches that you both, uh, both, uh, both, both the Pete's would uh, pick out? <laughs> yeah, uh, I like that, that one. <laughs> Sorry, uh, yeah. I'm looking for my highest rated Bachwinkle match here. Uh, my highest rated Zabisco match. It's actually one that I don't have much to say about it's uh zabisco and mr go against rotundo and hennig and i seem to have lost my notes on it too so um <laughs> i'm sure it was really good though <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
There's, sorry, I should uh, I should make a habit of speaking to only one piece at once. So, I'm <laughs> sorry. I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say shoe just to make it easy because oh. it's confusing. <laughs> it's confusing the hell out of me. <laughs> All right, yeah, shoe. The the Bachwinkle Zabisco one from uh, 7-Eleven 87. Yeah, I mean, that's like, my uh, number highest one too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, I think. I mean, I think. You said you hit the nail, Chow, when you said on a on a good day, he can have a really good match, and I actually think that the be- his best AWA match didn't um, quite make the set because it happened in 1990. It's that Mr. Sato match on the 1990 yearbook. That's a that's amazing that match. That might be a better match than anything on the set. You're right. That's, that's a that, really great match. I mean, that's just one of the all time bizarro world awesome matches for me. I mean, that 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 match holds up against the, in the face of what New Japan was doing in 1990, which was really good. So that's how good that match that that was. So uh, that's probably like the best uh, Larry match I've seen. But like, um, yeah, I, I just don't think like I think he's too hit and miss, and I think that he is a guy who needs someone to work against, someone good to work against. I, I I've yet to see him carry someone. His stuff with Regal from WCW was really, really good. That, that, that Class of Champions tag match with him and Arn against Steamer and Dustin Rhodes, that whole yes. presentation is yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah but what, he's not carrying, like, Steamboat or Dustin Rhodes no, no, or, no. or Regal, is he, right? So he needs he needs a good opponent is what I'm saying. Like, uh, we don't see him, um, we don't see him, like, any matches with, uh, like, Larry Zabisto versus this this Stephen Regal, for example. Oh yeah, no, yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> I, I'm going to disagree with that a little bit because, and I know Parv, you just are going to disagree with this, but I really like the Nikita Koloff match, which I think is the last match on the set. And yes. Nikita's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nikita's a guy who definitely needed carrying it in 1989. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to comment. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Um, I that was actually the, obviously the last match I watched, and. Uh, yeah, it was a pretty bummer way to end the set for me, but I do realise that I'm my hatred for that version of Nikita is so great that it's difficult for me to look beyond. So. Here's um, one I don't know if uh, if Peter can uh, remember this one, but um, in the 1991 yearbook, his match with Sting on a I think it was a Power yeah. Hour it was uh, it was very quick, and I thought that was actually stunningly very good uh them two together it is it's wcw main event uh 310 1991 i'm looking at it now uh so i thought that was a case where zabisco i mean sting was really good in that match i thought but uh but i i thought uh zabisco was right there with him and they really kind of worked a uh, pretty amazing match for them two in 1991 i've seen that match too and i thought that was awesome and it would have been a great step, like step one in a feud match, but it, it never really, the feud never transpired and stuff. Because that, I mean, it had intensity, it had heat, had a lot of action, and it had, I mean, it was hate filled. And I felt like it was just going to build on it. And it, it was just typical WCW, which was <laughs> drop this angle, drop this feud. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Well, shall we move on from uh, Larry Z? Let's go around the let's go around the group again. See who else comes out of the woodwork here. Uh, I'll start with you first, uh, Shu. I'm going to call you Shu from the, for the rest of the show because I can't uh, I can't deal with the two Peter angle. <laughs> <laughs> what yeah, was the question? Another worker that you'd uh... okay. Um, let's 
go look. Let's look at uh, uh, Sergeant Slaughter. All right. Any comments on Slaughter? He's a guy I've always liked throughout his career. Um, I think his best stuff is either uh, we don't get a whole lot of his look in, in the Carolinas, but he, I mean, obviously that final conflict cage matches, you know, his aces and stuff with Backland and the WWF was really good. It's uh, an Iron Sheik feud is, is gold. Even later in his career, even as depatriotized uh, Sergeant Slaughter turncoat, he was able to pull out some good matches with Hogan. And here, I mean, he was—he had really strong matches with Stan Hansen, um, the tag match with the Blackwell. Uh, you know, he's just a big man, had incredible offense. He was, again, he was a big bumper. And speaking of guys who take a big bump into a cage, I'd put Slaughter up there. Yeah. Uh, when we were referring to Blackwell earlier and stuff, uh, he can really make a cage shake. Um, his promo is just real believable. I mean, with that cadence he had, I mean, he was a, he's a character. And a good worker. Yeah, um, I've, I've got a couple more comments on Slaughter, but let's uh, let, let's see what Pete thinks. Peter, Pete, F. Um, yeah, Slaughter was uh, better than I expected going in, actually. Um, his reputation for a long time um, was a guy who just completely fell off as a worker uh, after the, his falling out with the WWF. Just the, the reputation was he got out of shape, he got um, the, his ego grew. Um the Hanson series is great. Um, it sort of got diminishing returns. I don't think uh, each subsequent match was a little bit worse than the one before it. But uh, the first one is a really great brawl. Um, he's he's in that six-man cage match, which is really good. Um, he's, I guess, the only disappointment might be that boot camp match uh, at Super Clash. But uh, it's it's that's not that's not even too bad. Um, he didn't fall he didn't fall off as. Uh, as much as his reputation uh, would have you believe, I don't think. Chad, anything to add here? Um, I'd agree with most of those points. And actually, I mean, Slaughter's kind of a sneaky guy that, as currently, I have two of his matches in my top ten, uh, which he only showed up four times on the set. And I don't, I don't think right offhand he's kind of a guy I would look at for myself as kind of one of the top, uh, five, you know, workers that you want to see comprised in a top ten like this. But I do have that uh, aforementioned cage match as my number eight. And then I did like the uh, 223-86 match versus Hanson a lot. I know that seemed to be a series you were a little bit lower on par as you thought it kind of be an all-timer match. And I will agree that the, uh, the bunkhouse match to me was uh, maybe – Slightly disappointing, but I thought the two twenty three eighty six match was uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, well, at, at the risk of repeating myself, which I'm probably gonna, I'm probably going to do on this show, because <laughs> um, we talk about Hanson on the uh, on the bit later on, Chad. So, uh, but I basically gave a lot of those matches B pluses. Um, right. So for me, going into the set, right, because I've seen that early WF slaughter stuff and final conflict i was looking for him in this little stretch here to kind of cement his rep cement himself as kind of like a worker of the 80s type candidate you know and i don't think he quite hits that level for me on this set like he everything he does is great um mm -hmm. it doesn't hurt him but i i don't think it's like exhibit a and exhibit b for yes yeah, slaughter slaughter is you know a top five 80s guy um 
and really he kind of needs something like he's got those big marquee matches it's kind of weird like he's got those uh you mentioned them all uh shoe um you know he's got those big matches that everybody knows about but we need like something else to put in there with them if that makes any sense um and these are all like so i had them all at b plus like i said so uh that was my only thing with him I think when the NWA set rolls out, I've been watching some footage from the early 80s. Him and Wahoo had quite a series. Uh, and st- had actually, I think, had one studio match and then one uh, t- uh, one arena match. And they're both just hard-hitting. And, and again, it's not that blow-away match you're looking for. Uh, and I think it's just we'll just add to the, the legend of Sergeant Slaughter, who I think in probably the last five years has become more of an internet favorite than he was easily when the internet first came out and stuff yeah i mean no he's he's a good worker right but i i'm just not sure if it like i mean if we're talking tiers uh slaughter maybe i don't know like maybe tier four looking to get into tier three something like that for me or would he be higher for for you chad i don't know uh I, i would say tier three but i will provide the caveat that uh the footage that she was talking about a stuff I hadn't seen and sounds really good. So yeah. I, no, I reserve I, my right to change that. I can imagine Wahoo versus Slaughter being pretty awesome. So yeah, yeah. Well, I think I'm going to ask you yeah. one question. Is that a normal man? Well, I think you think he had control of his senses. Do you think he's all there? The answer is no. And he gets a championship match for the championship of the world. Now I know promoters are coming from all over. And that's usually when they smell a championship change. That's usually when they want to be the first one there to get dates on the new champion. You're wasting your time. You're wasting a trip. It proves conclusively, I guess, what Hulk Hogan is capable of, Dick Bockwinkle. Okay, I'll tell you what he's capable of. I'd like to stand out here and talk very rational. I'd like to stand out here and just talk in a very nice, soft-spoken tone. But it's impossible. And the reason it's impossible, because you just said what this man is capable of. Now, he has shown, he has demonstrated to the people of Chicago and the rest of the world that he is capable of being a little wacko, being 330 or 40 pounds of six-foot-eight giants that can go in there. Now, we are talking about wrestling, and maybe it has passed by Stanley Blackburn and the promoters and the matchmakers throughout the country that this man has no place in wrestling. He has proven it time and time again. And yet, they are actually having me step into the ring to defend the heavyweight championship of the world, wrestling, the oldest sport in the world, against a man who has no wrestling ability, who has shown he has no respect for anyone's body or limb or life, and all he wants to do is hurt, maim, and destroy, and you people are excited about the fact that this could become the next heavyweight champion of the world? You're all sick. What, what, what else do we have here? How many times, uh, how many picks have you had now? Have you both had two, Shu and Peter? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, Chad, you, I'll tell you what I'll do, Chad. Your second one, I'll do a second one, and then I'll just get to these uh, big guns here. <laughs> we'll just go through the big guns uh, that we probably need to talk about. So. Okay, yeah. All right. So your next pick. Uh, my next pick is going to be Jerry Lawler, and that is... Basically from a reason where I think in the past few years we've seen a lot of uh, greatest of all time discussion 
uh, one of the makers of the set, Will. He's the, uh, I guess, the lead person champion that flag with his discussion. And I thought Lawler kind of was a little bit uh, sneaky, I guess I may say, on this set because he, again, uh, in a lot of ways, like Slaughter, he's not somebody that automatically sticks out to me. But of his five matches, the lowest one I have ranked is number 64. And then I also have a couple of top 25 matches from him with the uh, Jerry Lawler versus Kurt Henning match from 7-16-88. The Bill Dundee Lawler tag versus original Midnight Express. I, I really like that match, Parv. I know you uh, are not crazy about the Midnight Express offense in that match. Uh, yeah. But, but yeah, I think that match is a ton ton of fun. Probably one of the funnest matches on the set. And then the Lawler versus uh, Kerry Von Erich match, and even the Blackjack Mulligan tag I thought was very interesting to see. I mean, that was that was a neat match overall because you had Blackwell, Mulligan, and Lawler and uh, Ken Patera all in the same ring together. Uh, but those four matches to me were definitely kind of upper half on this set. And while I don't think Lawler had a straight blow-away performance that if you wanted to talk about top ten Lawler individual performances of all time, uh, you'd point to one of his matches we saw on this set. I certainly don't think he had any embarrassing performances or, I guess, hindered his case, if you want to make a case for him as the greatest wrestler of all time. Any uh, comments, Shrew? Yeah, I think, I think Chad hit it right on the head. I thought he did really well on the set. Um, and we, Of course, we didn't get to see a whole lot of his promo work, but I thought his match with Hennig was really good. Um, the, the tag, I wasn't high on it. Like a lot of people were, I thought, but I, but I was, I thought he did a great job with carrying. I thought he carried Mulligan on that tag, um, uh, and stuff. Um, and you know, he, he was good. Um, I enjoyed the, uh, I enjoyed the, um, original midnight express tag. Uh, some people have put it up there as a classic. I wouldn't call it a classic, but I thought it was a heck of a fun tag. Probably in the three and three fourths, the four star range, you know? perfectly good fun wrestling good southern tag yeah i, I mean I, I will say as a little uh aside that i did think that this is probably uh randy rose on this set was probably better than we've seen him chad in uh in uh in his nwa run <laughs> i thought he uh quitted himself all right in these <laughs> matches yeah i i, I mean I, I really like this uh original midnight express run i must say they kind of <laughs> I'm not going to call them uh, one of the great lost tag teams, but uh, I really enjoyed everything we saw from them. And uh, once I do get the footage from James of his 1988 and uh, 1989 NWA sets, those are one of the uh, the matches involving them will be one of the things I'll be most looking forward to. I mean, what, what... He actually, uh, in 89, he actually had like a, a feud with Jack Victory, and the match <laughs> oh, no. actually fun for how short they are. I mean, you're looking at like a four or five minute, like, but they're working it because uh, because of Victory replaces Rose and or replaces Condry, and Polly signs with a uh, uh, Victory, and they do these like five minute, pretty spirited brawls and stuff that <laughs> Saturday night. What what I'll say is that for some reason, Randy Rose, when he grows his hair out, just automatically looks like a jobber. But he, here in AWA, he looked much less like a jobber, I thought. Uh, you know, but I guess this is also an environment where, like, you know, Doug Summers is a legit tag champ and stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> we will talk about him in a second. But you well, know what I mean? He's a pretty like, boy. 
He's a pretty boy. He's a pretty, pretty boy. boy, yeah. <laughs> yeah pretty boy. Great Gagne is the TV champ. <laughs> um, so who are we talking about here? Jerry Lawler, yeah. Jerry Lawler. Um, now, I've, I honestly had struggled with Lawler on the set, as you know. Um, yeah. I don't think I have a single match of his above B rating, which is about, I think, three and a half is a B rating. So that, that's not uh, that good. Um yeah, I guess I don't get it, Chad. I, I don't really get the... Um, I mean, when, when we talked about this before, people said, well, you know, you have to see him in Memphis and, you know, it's the context and the angles and stuff. And I, like I said, I can see myself enjoying Memphis, right? Um, but I don't know if I'm missing something with these Lola matches on this set. Like, what does he do? He does a couple of punches and hides a chain in his tights am i missing something well lawler is definitely better as a baby face i think um his heel work is is sometimes a little disappointing especially on the 1990 yearbook um that 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 carrie von eric super flash match i thought was pretty great and probably lawler's standout heel performance yeah i mean he was, he's he was better working heel, right yeah on this set uh let me see where i went with that um carry match i can't i'm trying to remember now um, am I missing something though? I mean, Chad, you probably know my taste better than anyone. I mean, what do you think? I mean, I think it's just a, uh, uh, I mean, it's a less is more approach that Lawler utilizes sometimes. And I don't think that's more your forte, uh, more or less. I think that's all you can really chalk it up to. I mean, I, I will say that I do think I do like Lawler as a heel, uh, more than most, uh, more than people like uh, Peter and Loss who have went through these yearbooks. So the 1990 stuff, I did think he, uh, once he did turn after the Snowman feud, I thought that was a turn for the better. And I think he's one of the uh, all-time, all-timers as a babyface. I wouldn't say that as a heel. But uh, but I, I do enjoy most of his uh, heel stuff. And then, I will say the kind of the hide the chain stuff. I don't know if it's a soft spot or what, but it it's not as grating on me as it is for a lot of other people. Yeah, but, I mean it's just like you know, I, I, somebody said it somewhere on the on the forum the other day that you know he's like a one trick pony and he's only he just does the one trick. I mean, I, surely he's got more than one trick, obviously, but it's like he throws a great punch, but like other than that, I'm not really seeing it. Based on this, I, I will go and watch the Memphis set at some point to get a proper assessment. Um, and I've loved his stuff from the 1990 set so far that I've seen, which is like two months yeah. worth. And see, and that's Hill. That's all Hill, too, the first that's couple all, Well, months. see, when I say I loved his stuff, though, I've loved him in the studio yeah, winding yeah. up Dave Brown, you know? <laughs> yeah, doing the steroid test or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I will say like to the criticism that Lawler's a one-trick pony. I mean, I mean Lawler's not a guy that's going to be uh, going in there with Billy Robinson, exchanging like Greco-Roman wrestling and all this complicated chain wrestling and reversals. And you know, he he's not the most adaptable person that I've ever met in the ring. But uh, also contrary to that, I mean. I do think he has great matches as a as a heel, and I do think he has all time great matches as a baby face, and I do think his career has been long enough, and he's had so many great matches with such a variety of uh, people and a variety of errors that that kind of 
to me, takes away that criticism as a one-trick pony because, I mean, his matches versus Miz as himself as a, uh, you know, a legend that has one more match in him. That's some of the best, I guess, like veteran legend WWE booking I've ever seen. And I thought he was uh, fabulous in that role. There's a match, uh, I think it's still on YouTube from a couple years ago. It's kind of one of my all-time favorite, like, Chad selection-type matches. It's uh, Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee on opposite sides, and they're in a tag match. And you might like this part. They're teaming up with a local uh, doctor or surgeons. Right. Like like untrained wrestlers. So they, they come out in their scrubs. And, uh, and there's a baby-faced doctor, and there's a heel doctor. <laughs> and, it, and it is great. It's like Dr. Lin, uh, Linder and I think Dr. McCarver or something. I can't remember which one the heel doctor is, but he is amazing. Like, he's he's on the apron, like, choking out Lawler and all this stuff. It is, it is a fantastic, like, little match in a, in a high school gymnasium. The crowd's going nuts. Uh, he's yelling at kids in that match, and uh, I mean, to me, that's like a testament to him. That sounds like a ton of fun. I have to watch yeah. that, you know. Yeah, it is. Um, okay, any, any more Lawler stuff here? I mean, what do you actually think of him as a choice of champion? It's a little bit strange that he comes in in 87 here. Is it even 88? 88 by the time he gets the title, right? Is that right? 88? Yeah, I guess it was just kind of uh, both of their hands were forced somewhat to where they kind of merged together as a last-ditch effort once um, you had the the uh, Crockett expansion. And then, of course, WWF was uh, very national by that point in time, and AWA was on the decline. It's an interesting choice, but I kind of like it. I mean, I enjoy seeing well, it. Uh, one thing about Waller is that he sort of resurrected, uh, if only temporarily, the whole traveling champion um, vibe. He went around to Continental and the, the dying Florida territories and stuff like that, defending the AWA title while the AWA itself was basically just running television at that point. Very few house shows. So um, while Ric Flair was becoming what Waller would call a company champion and while Hogan was a company champion, Waller was actually defending the title in multiple territories uh, as small time as those territories may have been at 1987 or 88. Did he uh, draw at all as AWA champ or is that like, that's not obviously not, not something you can hold against him to a great extent, but it's not like he, he was, he came in and turned the business around for them. No. His, his title win over Hennig drew uh, pretty well, I think. I don't think it sold out the Coliseum, but it drew about 8,000 people, which was more than they were generally drawing at the time. Right. Okay, well, why don't we talk about Kurt Hennig now? As uh, He's obviously one of the... There's a couple of big figures looming uh, here that we should probably give some time to. And right. Kurt, Kurt Hennig is uh, somebody we see, uh, you know, from a, from a young, up-and-coming... Uh, kind of son of a second generation son of a wrestler or is he even third generation Hennig was a second generation second generation yeah um and we well we see him come in and he's kind of like still got a bit of puppy fat and stuff and then we see him kind of develop into uh, a main eventer and then cool Kurt at the end there and uh, and champion so uh, I'll go with you uh, first Shu thoughts on uh, Hennig? Yeah, I thought he, I mean, he, he, I liked him a lot on the set. I mean, he started off as, you know, a youngster and then uh, 
challenging Bockwinkle and and, and Hanson. That was one that a lot of people loved. Uh, the Hanson matches, all his matches with Bockwinkle were really good. That hour draw is a, is a, is a classic. Um, uh, had so much drama in it with the blood at the end and just really built to that draw. Um, uh, he's just, yeah, he just, you know, he just developed throughout. You know, you saw him getting more and more personality as the years progressed, too. He started as the plucky underdog. Then he became a credible uh, uh, main eventer, and then he actually became the man of the Federation, become, becoming the champ and stuff. And you saw a good evolution of him. And I thought, I thought and on the AWA set, I thought he, his work really stood out really well and stuff. Did that hour draw is a lock for number one, right? For number one for the set. It's my number one. It's my number one, too. And yours, Chad? Yeah, so I, I think all four of us. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think on the strength of that alone, we can safely predict it's gonna. I mean, how many points are we uh, just the four of us giving it? Like, it's yeah. a massive. I'd be. Uh, I mean, I think at this point, honestly, to me, I'd be shocked if uh, that's not number one. The uh, Rockers, Summers, and Rose uh, Blood matches number two, and then uh, I think I think the real battle may be for number three. Uh, Maybe Bach and Wahoo, but I'm not certain on that. Yeah, I think uh, I don't know why. Like Dylan was a little bit disappointed that that wasn't um, that there wasn't more of a contest for number one there. But what did he think that was gonna touch it? You know, it's uh, it head and shoulders the best match on the set, right? Well, I, I know that's. I don't think that's gonna be his number one when it's all said and done. So that's part of it can you remember what he's gone for it's not like brad ran again uh, Martel, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, i can't remember me. it may be uh it may be that uh the uh 830 86 uh rose summers versus uh rockers match it I, that's possible i know his number two is the uh and it's funny we mentioned that. i know his number two is the hansen versus henning match yeah from right. i think uh 531 86 uh, I know that's his number two. Uh, he probably mentions that in the portion later on. Um, but uh, and, and I, I like that. I guess I can just go ahead and say my piece with Henning. To me, Henning, uh, Nick Bockwinkle's the blow away to me worker on the set. But once you start talking about number two, number three, number four, I see it as kind of a three-horse race between Henning, uh, Blackwell, and then uh, Martell. I thought Henning had a lot of... Uh, great stuff the Bachwinkle series just uh within that that has uh my number one match that we just discussed it has my uh i actually have the title change number three just because and i think i may be the high vote on that but i thought that really culminated their feud wonderfully i really enjoyed the way henning acted in that match up to the turn uh, with Larry Sabisco, I, I love the fact that it's still slightly ambiguous whether Sabisco actually handed him the roll of coins or not. I think that's kind of uh, very neat with how it's filmed and what it looks like. And after that, I think that sort of jump-started, and it's kind of sad that the crowds didn't go with him. But I have that number three, and then, I mean, the other matches, the three seven eighty seven match they had was very good. That's the top 25 match for me. Uh, the Christmas night match, I know you really like Parv, and that one's top 50 for me. So Henning had a lot of, I mean, that series is an all-timer series, but beyond that, I thought his matches with Wahoo, uh, actually, I mean, Wahoo in 1988, I think, is kind of somebody that may slightly be in that uh, 
that Colonel De Beers level for Peter because I thought Wahoo by that time was uh, fairly limited, and I thought Henning got about as uh, much out of him as could be uh, as you could want because Wahoo seemed pretty far gone by that point. You know, um, I I think. Um... In fact, before I say uh, my bit, uh, Peter, any uh, additional Kurt uh, talk here? I not much I can add. Um, he's got about I'm looking through here, probably seven or eight matches in my top forty. Um, with again a good variety of opponents: Bachwinkle, um, Wahoo, Lawler, and uh, a few tag matches. Um, yeah, he's just way more versatile than he was ever allowed to show in the WWF, which was all just sort of punches, chops, stomps, and wild bumping, where um, here he actually brings some uh, brings some offense to him that he didn't really show as Mr. Perfect. I can't actually even remember him doing the stomps and stuff as Mr. Perfect. It's just the bumping, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, it, now, I have to say that this may be a talking point here, that I, my honest feeling for the set, um, was that I didn't think that he was that great as a babyface, um, and that he didn't really feel to me that he was anywhere near being like a total package until he was Cool Kurt, until he was the heel, and I and I actually thought that he was awesome as a as the heel champion. Um, you know, it wasn't that long, but it felt like that felt to me like Mr. Perfect plus Cool Offense. You know, he had the attitude, he had. He had uh, he was starting to build in some of his crazy bumping, but it still wasn't kind of cartoon levels at this point. And he still had you know some decent stuff in his locker. Um, as the babyface, like he was really overshadowed by Rick Martel for me. Um, like there's I can't think of any metric where you can say that Hennig is a better babyface than Martel. Um, I agree. There. Would you um, agree? That's that's a hard. I mean, that's I mean, that's you're comparing him to a really strong babyface. I mean, would you call that a knock? Do you think his babyface work was a knock or? Well, I mean, I guess uh, before the set came out, people were saying, "Well, you're going to watch this set and you're going to st- start thinking about Hennig as like an all-time, you know, you're going to see him as like not only as a as a good worker, but like an all-time great babyface and stuff." And I just don't think he's at that level. Like he just didn't, um, you know. All right. He had a great, you know, he's working against Nick Bockwinkle, so of course the matches are going to be good. You know, he's he's not a broomstick, but I, I just think that, um, you know, a lot of times we were watching these matches back-to-back with the Martel matches, and so he kind of paled in comparison. And I know it's unfair, because Martel was like the season guy at the top of the card at that point, and Hennig was still kind of learning his craft, but... I don't think he was quite there, and I don't think he really pulled it together until probably that handsome match uh, that Dylan liked so much, uh, Chad. It's really after that point that he feels like a great worker to me. I mean, uh, would anyone disagree with that? Like, really, his best performances come after that point, right? Um, Well, I mean, I'd say they come after that, but I think from that until the turn match, he's very good. I mean, he's probably a top, uh, I can't, I mean, for me personally, I can't think of too many baby faces I'd have from him in the set. I mean, I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't categorize him as a top baby face versus Martell. That'd probably be Martell, 
uh, Blackwell's a baby face may be better, but by the same token, I wouldn't say Henning was the best heel either. I mean, he's going up against Bockwinkle there. All right, well, I'll ask some questions then. This should be fun. <laughs> uh, is Kurt Hennig, as a baby face in AWA, better than Jim Brunzel or uh, Greg Gagne? Uh, I'm going to say yes to both. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, and I like Brunzel a lot, and I like Gagne quite a bit too, but um, uh, I, I'm not sure if Brunzel had a real standout singles match. Um, let me, I'm looking through here. I guess is. Yeah, I think the uh, Bachwinkle match I have at 97, I think that's his highest rated singles match for uh, Hennig's matches with Bachwinkle were obviously a lot better than that. Plus, he has the match with Hanson, which is a, a top four match for me. Right, well, but what about the high flyer stuff? I mean, obviously, their best stuff is in there. So it's like saying, you know, you can uh, you can pick. Yeah, a- but that, that that's might be a, a case of the whole being greater than some of the parts, though. Um, they might. <laughs> Guy and Brunzel might work better together than they do uh, individually, and Kurt didn't really have a uh, permanent tag partner who was on his level. Yes. So what? So you think Greg Garnier and uh, Jim Brunzel were on a level too? Just interested, you know. Just uh, fairly close. I think Brunzel was better, but uh, they, they were. It wasn't like um, I don't know Bret Hart and Jim Neidhart or something like that. Right. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I thought Brunzel was better than Gagne. Uh, but, uh, I don't want to say by a healthy margin, but by, by a good margin, though. Where uh, It might be like a comparison of Arn Anderson and Larry Zbysko type of, uh, even though those guys are heels, uh, in comparison on, on, on the level. Because uh, Brunzel really made me want to go out and find some more Killer B matches uh, in the WWF, seeing if maybe there's some sleepers out there. <laughs> find anything good? Uh, not really. <laughs> I, I mean, I'll be honest. I haven't looked that hard. So, um, uh, and stuff. But uh, now, with Kenning and, and actually in Portland, he was a heck of a baby face. Before uh, this point? Buddy Rose a lot. Yeah, it was before this, Parf. Wow. So, well, I mean, so you, you think even before this point, Hennig was uh, really good in Portland? I mean, how does this yeah. stuff compare to that? Uh, I mean, I thought some of his, I mean, his the stuff with Buddy Rose, I would compare it to, it's like a step, maybe a step below the Bachwinkle stuff. Right. Uh, he's, and he's, he's a little greener in Portland, but Buddy was so good at carrying those type of guys. I mean, because Portland, I mean, they, he tell, he carried green people constantly, and Henning wasn't as green as a lot of the people he had to carry. And, I mean, it was, it was definitely Buddy Rose carrying him, but when that set comes out, you'll see some, like, high-end, Buddy Rose and, and uh, uh, um, Kurt Hennig. All right. Well, I guess I'm on my own here then in uh, thinking that Hennig, like, I'm not saying he was bad as a babyface. I just think that he didn't stand out in any way to me. Um, I, and e- even if I've got some of his babyface performances uh, ranked fairly highly, uh, it may be because he had a good opponent there. So. Uh, yeah, he, one one thing about Hennig as a heel is he, we do get to see him carry some people. Um, those, I mean, the matches with Mitch Snow and DJ Peterson, I don't think yeah. are going to finish in anyone's top twenty. But those are nice, yeah. solid matches against uh, demonstrably inferior opponents. Um, I kind of like to see like a babyface Hennig against like a Kevin Kelly or something like that. Um, uh, I'm sort of like the thing I said earlier about Zabisco. I'd like to see him more and against a mid card type heel just to see what he could do with them. 
All right. Well, I mean, uh, the, the, the only um, I forgot to mention earlier, I had Kerry Lawler as an A minus, which is a pretty high rating for me. So um, the, I, I felt like I had a ton. Like every other match was an A minus on this set for me. But Kerry Lawler, not bad at all. Um, I think uh, shall we look at Rose and Summers? They seem like uh, some meaty guys that we haven't mentioned yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the, f- the first thing I wanted to say about Rose and Summers is um, just the look of these guys. You know, when you first see them together, it's like we're, we're an amazing odd couple. You know, they look like uh, you know Rose is kind of like fat and out of shape, and <laughs> Summers is just this kind of sleazy, <laughs> sleazy dude. Um, Shoe, any thoughts on Rose and Summers? I mean, they're just a great tag team. I, I still remember back in the, in the early days of uh, the internet, uh, Rose uh, did a, like a sock puppet name on uh, Kayfabe Memories, and they were voting for the greatest AWA tag team. And so he kept on voting for him in Summers. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't get K-Hawk started on that one. That was his tournament, and he's he's held it against uh, Buddy Rose ever since for that. <laughs> <laughs> And stuff. I mean, obviously, there's there's stuff with the Rockers was like uh, really high end stuff. Uh, the the cage matches, even the even the stuff that they uh, like, even like at the one at the uh, Russell Rock. I mean, that's a solid tag match. It wasn't a wasn't blow away or anything, but it was a really good solid tag match. Uh, there's stuff again though know, as the feud goes on. They're fooding for the titles. That stuff really becomes some high end stuff. Um, they really seems like they really hate each other. Uh, they did so they did a good job with that um, and stuff. And then they had good tag matches with a couple other teams. Uh, and then they really they they actually I thought they felt I felt they actually made a name for themselves as being a really strong tag team uh, of the '80s and stuff. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I wanted to mention here is that uh, a lot like there's a lot of Buddy Rose talk, especially if you hang around on uh, PWO. Apologies if you're listening to the show and you like don't <laughs> post there and you never heard of buddy rose but uh, um in our in our kind of circle there's a lot of buddy rose talk it's safe to say but uh doug summers is right there with him would you agree with that uh, on this uh set pete peter uh, i thought he was i thought he yeah, i thought he was good. he wasn't as good as rose but he was really good i mean he his, his he had that nice little tag it's not singles match against rotunda he was a heck of a bumper um he really he was a he, Pretty much, you know, when he was in there, he he looked good and stuff. Uh, and you're expecting him to be a jabroni, and he really just, you know, came out and came out as aces. Yeah, he's better than Randy Rowe, isn't he? Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I guess I never really thought about it. Um, no, I, I, I don't know. For in my mind, like I've got like j- particular journeyman workers, and uh, uh-huh. Randy Rowe is like he's one of these type of guys and. Doug Summers, like outside of this run, when do you ever see him? I, 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 I haven't. <laughs> I, you see him as jobbing as a jobber in the WWF. No, uh, he's he's literally like a one, uh, like a one year wonder, Doug Summers, in terms of like one massive peak run. Uh, yeah, I think he's career journeyman. I mean, I, but I, I literally like I've seen like some late jobber matches from him, but I don't really see him crop up. Like I haven't seen him in Crockett yet, Chad. Uh, he has a very high-profile pay-per-view match coming up on uh, Halloween Havoc 1991 versus uh, Van Hammer. So be on the lookout for that. 
Van Hammer. How did that not make the 91 yearbook? I have no idea. Lost good helmet if you're listening. <laughs> they dropped the dropped ball on that one. Yeah. yeah. Do, you know, they should have, uh, instead of giving Jack Victory all those mask jobs, they should have given it to Doug Summers. Like, he would have been great as uh, oh, yeah. R- Russian number two or, you know, the blackmailer. The blackmailer. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm surprised he didn't show up in Portland because supposedly him and Buddy were buddies from California and they drove the ring truck together. In the old L.A. territory, and uh, I was expecting to see him in some Portland, and I haven't. But wait, where was he? Like, he seems like he was nowhere. I haven't seen him come up on any on anything. Like, And I've been looking at, like, Georgia cards and stuff from, like, I'm, I'm looking in on. New, uh, in the new Carolinas book that I that I, that I recommended as a, a good uh, a sublet with the uh, Crockett doc, uh, doc, Summers actually worked some Crockett shows uh, in between 78 and 80. Right. But underneath, like on the bottom of the car, not even close to the main event. Chew, uh, it looks like I'm looking on wrestling data right now. Uh, Summers does have a run in Portland in '84, uh, summer of '84. It doesn't look okay. like as anything. Doesn't look like anything uh, substantial, but he did work there. When does okay. uh, when does put like Portland keeps going? Right, it's one of those promotions that didn't go under until later. Is that right? Uh, yeah, end of the nineties, ninety two ish, like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So no, I, I, I'd have thought. Oh, all right. Well, um, so PF uh, Rose and Summers. Any thoughts? Um, I would say probably neck and neck with the Rockers. Uh, who else is the number one working tag team of the set? Um, the High Flyers probably had more big matches, of more higher drawing matches, and a number of really great matches. But uh, I don't think they can match uh, Rose and Summers as far as peak. Um, longevity, yes, but not a peak. Because uh, Rose and Summers, I've got them. I've got them as the number two match, uh, the number eight match, and a number 14 match. And also, I have number 11, the uh, mixed tag with Sherry Martel and uh, Despina Montegas, which I might be the uh, highest voter on, but I really love that one. And <laughs> I that love was, that uh, match, too. That was, that was probably Buddy's uh, standout performance as a worker on this set. Any any thoughts on uh, Debbie the Killer Tomato while we're talking about Sherry? <laughs> <laughs> I, I know how much you love that match, Chad. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised that wasn't uh, Peter's number three pick after he rolled out Big John Stud. <laughs> uh, um, I don't have much to say about Debbie. Other than she has yeah. the greatest name of anyone on the set. Yeah, yeah. Hmm? And some brief thoughts on uh, Rose and Summers, uh, Chad, before I bring out the big talking point with these guys. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be mostly an echo of what uh, I said, uh, of what uh, Bo Peets have said. One of the greatest short-lived tag teams of all time. Uh, Wish More Summers was on tape. Uh, certainly helps add to the resume that is Buddy Rose uh, and really got me geared up to watch all his Portland stuff in the fullest. So, so obviously the big, I mean, one of the stories of this set, I guess, was... Uh, was Matt D and his um, his <laughs> his hatred of the cage match? Uh, you know the one everyone talks about. Uh, is it the Christmas one? It's the Christmas yeah, the cage. Yeah, 1986 uh, cage match. The Christmas cage match, right? So Matt Matt D basically had like a one man crusade against this match, um, and I mean Will and uh, Johnny Sorrow on the AWA. Uh, Party sets were having none of it. Essentially, they were like 
no, he's mad. This uh, match is awesome. And I kind of felt myself a little bit. I, I could definitely, I also had a problem with the first 10 minutes of the match, the way that Shawn Michaels treated Doug Summers basically like a jobber during that. Um, and I was just interested to see where each of the, each of the three of you are. Uh, like, where were you in that particular debate? And I, I think I've got a feeling, uh, PF, that you were with, uh, kind of with Will on this. I have it at number eight, so um, I don't know where Will had it, but yeah, I'm not not with Matt D on this, definitely. And uh, unfortunately, the, that thread is now missing, and I only have my original notes. And I got into a little debate with Matt over it, but uh, and that's currently lost right now. But uh, yeah, I thought it was great. Um, there, I can see some criticisms of it. Um, I think Billy Robinson was the referee, and I don't quite get the point of having a guest referee in a cage match, and. Um, but uh, the action was so good that, uh, that its flaws could easily be forgiven. True. Yeah, I don't have it ranked yet, uh, but I my star rating I have next to it is four and three fourths. So I obviously loved it. Uh, I just it was just a bloody brawl, and I, I mean I saw the, the complaints, but not enough where it. Sometimes I see complaints in matches I like, but not enough that really derails it for me. And that even the, the Matt D's complaints had no. Uh, Derailment uh, of my my uh, train that was the Rockers Rose Summers experience, so I enjoyed it. Shall where were you on this one? Um, I kind of feel I kind of <laughs> feel weak because I feel like I'm an impartial uh, kind of in between everybody. I end up having it. Let me see where I have, I have it ranked number thirty six. Um, so uh, for me, the beginning section does derail it a little bit. The uh, opening shine sequence to me was a little bit uh, too long, and it's kind of the same uh, syndrome uh, in detriment of this match that I didn't like in the final conflict cage match where I felt the uh, shine sequence in that match was too long. And in addition, in that match, uh, you had Steamboat, and uh, young boy kind of being, in my eyes, a little bit too technical in the cage match. Uh, didn't seem a lot of desperation here. I thought you had Shawn Michaels just kind of being a pretty big jerk throughout the opening ten minutes of that match. Uh, so I mean, it, it's one of those matches along with Final Conflict. I mean, I think I'd have the Final Conflict. I'd say that's an overall better match in my eyes to me. But uh, th- this match is probably for me like right on the four star range, uh, three and three quarters. And I do think the opening, uh, the back half of the match is one of the all time classic type matches. But the front half uh, distracts it a little bit for me. And I think we had a, a much tighter version on the uh, 117 uh, 87 cage match, which is my uh, working number six. I, I'm I'm right there with you. I mean, my, the way my rankings go for these, I've got the 11787 as an A. I've got the 12787 as an A is minus, and I've got the Christmas match as a B plus. So, I mean, I you can see there that. Uh, but you see, I do my comments separately before I've read anything, right? So, I was really interested because I wrote my things where I was quite critical of that first 10 minutes. I think it really hurts things. Um, and uh, I was surprised to see that a lot of the points that I hit were points that Dylan and Matt D also hit. Um, where I think Matt D is probably <laughs> goes a little bit too far is that he doesn't seem to give the uh, the control section of the match any 
credence. Like it doesn't. Like for me, that really saves the match because they then beat the shit out of the Rockers, and uh, I was actually rooting for Rosen Summers, which is probably means the match isn't working in the right way. But uh, Sean deserved to get his head kicked in in that match, and he does. So, um, but the, the the comparison point with the with the final conflict, uh, Chad, I think that um, the reason that it the final conflict doesn't have the same problem as this is that the final conflict builds to a big moment where um Canodal first hits the cage whereas this is guys hitting the cage from like the first second so that's my and it and it's kind of worked us backwards where you have the you know the heels taking a beating first and then the faces getting the beating i, I don't really I really understand i mean a short shine i can understand because the heels were kind of fed up but I think when we get from uh, like minute seven through minute ten is when I really start to well, waver and linger on it. Well, well, it's it's not just that. It's Shawn Michaels having like a two count and then pulling Summers back up, spitting yeah, at yeah. him. Yeah, now those that I don't. I mean, that's one of my least favorite spots. He spits but, uh, in his he spits in his face. He um, there's a moment where he like pushes him down, like it's like he's like pushing him like a feather, and Summers like falls. It's kind of like you know he he felt felt like he was taking liberties a bit to me. Anyway, in the interest of time, let's. Uh, Luckily, let's... that would be the last time Shawn Michaels ever did that in a ring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was straight class all the way through. Yeah. yeah. He learned his lesson. So, speaking of guys who uh, can occasionally take liberties, I think the big elephant in the room here, Hulk Hogan, you know, uh, he was a the big breakout star from AWA um, and we should talk about him right oh in fact just before I move on from Rockers and Rosen Summers I should mention that Orton Adonis match against the Rockers is awesome yes yeah yeah. 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 Uh, I mean that, just just real quickly I mean the Rockers run after that I mean I enjoyed uh, I was actually a little bit disappointed in the, uh, the their kind of bad company match but uh, I, I like the original Midnight Express match a good bit and I uh, I really like that uh, <clears throat> Adonis match that to me was a uh, kind of shocking match with Bob Orton that's actually been my number nine match overall I thought that was one of the best uh, straight tags on the set you do if there's one criticism to make of Rose and Summers it's that you do wish they'd have stuck around for even just another six months and maybe we could have seen them against the Rock and Roll Express or the Fantastics or these random yeah. teams that showed up in the latter days. Instead, it's all against the Rockers. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually watched the Doug Summers uh, shoot as I mentioned on a on the in the Maldives on a on a desert island, and uh, he like painted himself as like a, a locker room kind of warrior and. Uh, he walked out because uh, Vern wasn't paying him and stuff, and Rose went with, it, with him. So I, I, I think those guys walked out over a pay dispute or something. But it's interesting because, like, when we talked to Dylan about this, Chad, didn't uh, didn't he say that Buddy Rose said that he never had a problem with Vern and Vern always treated him really well? So it was kind of yeah, yeah. So it's kind of it's it's kind of a gray area, I guess. Overall, I don't know. In the Shawn Michaels book, I remember they used an example. Of they were going to go to Chicago and it was like whatever a 250 mile trip, and uh, done. And uh, Buddy Rose tells Shawn Michaels, "Would you drive? Someone told you there's a twenty dollars in the tree in a tree. Would you drive 250 miles to get it?" And he goes, "No." And so he goes, "That's why we shouldn't show up for the match tonight." <laughs> 
no, it's a pretty good look. I wonder if uh, Rose and Summers were getting paid the same. Like, do you think like Rose was getting like a decent pay package and uh, Summers was still getting paid as like prelim, prelim fee? I have no idea. He was he was working his ass off. I'll, I'll give him that. Yeah, he certainly was. Um, yeah, and the other thing with Summers, like he disappears a bit because his daughter died. So. That's uh, a little bit tragic, but that's kind of why he disappears after this point. I think it's like in 88, so you don't see a lot of him after that. But as I was saying, I haven't seen a lot of him before that, this either. So um, Hulk Hogan then. Uh, now, my big point with Hogan was that, and uh, I thought I thought Brian had a great line, chat. It's a shame that it didn't tape, but <laughs> I, my point was that it, it felt to me that AWA Hogan is a little bit different from... The WF Hogan that we know, you know, when I talk about the WF Hogan that we know, I'm really talking about like Hogan from like 1989 or 90 or something, you know, when the formula was well worn and he'd been there for a long time. Um, he's a lot rawer at this point, and it felt to me that he ate up his opponents a lot more here. Um, and Brian's line on this was that he, his line was um, that AWA Hogan is like DOS and. <laughs> WF Hogan is like Windows, which which made me laugh. So, uh, PF, what, what do you reckon? Uh, I gotta say, I like the WWF Hogan a little bit better. Um, that was a little disappointed with the Bachwinkle matches. Um, part of that is the finishes. Going back to that um, yeah. talking point, um, you got the Super Sunday finish, which is one of the biggest bullshit finishes in wrestling history, and that does a lot to bring down the match. He does show off a little more offense in the AWA. He does, like, I think a shoulder breaker, which I don't think I ever saw him do after this. He might have even come off the top a time or two. But uh, as far as the AWA goes, I thought he was best suited in tag matches or six-man tags. It could be sort of this lurking force on the apron. His singles matches were, I think, uh, better at the WWF. Yeah, I mean, like, my if I could just interject, my, my... feeling is that he hadn't worked out at this point in his career the worth or the how can I say the importance of the sympathy the heel heat segment so you literally just have 20 minute squash matches or 10 minutes like he he treats Bockwinkle as if he's you know as if he's Doug Summers you know so uh, is that legitimate criticism I think he was working the AWA style. You know what I mean? Like, right, I yeah. do think in a way you're right because he was still green, so he probably hadn't perfected that yet. Uh, but I also think he was probably – that was that sort of uh, the face really dominates uh, on the front end. That was very much an AWA thing. So to me, it was probably both the fact that he hadn't perfected the other style and the fact that uh, it, it that, that sort of – uh, more closely comported with what was expected of a of a dominant babyface in the AWA. True. What do you reckon? I I agree with you. Like I remember that Saito match that I, like, some people gave a lot of praise to. I thought it was just Hogan guzzling uh, Mr. Torture up. Uh, but I enjoyed his I enjoyed his six man work like his that tag he had with the high flyers seemed like he was having a lot of fun being able to come in hot tag uh, had a lot of energy he felt more uh, felt more fresh than he did in the WWF uh, and WCW of course um, 
but um, I, I, but I, I I liked him in the tags. You liked him in the tags, okay, Chad. I think I like the Saito match a little bit better than uh, both Pete's. I mean, I I don't think it's I think I got that bottom five. I think I have that like an E. The Mr. Saito match or the Adrian Adonis match? Oh, yeah, you're right. It's the Adonis match. Okay, yeah. I got the Adrian Adonis match 147. But, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, Mr. Saito, I mean, I think that's kind of a fun, interesting match, but uh, nothing great. The, uh, the tag match is I do think he's best suited. Especially uh, that one six-man, him and the High Flyers versus Patera, Ventura, Bobby Heenan. Uh, that that one, I think, with the nuclear crowd, that's my favorite Hogan performance. I did like the uh, Super Sunday Bachwinkle match, but the shit finish really hinders it. And uh, I mean, I mean, it's it's interesting to see him in kind of I guess these primitive days of Hulkamania. But I do think that uh, kind of the trope that Hogan was great everywhere else but in the WWF, and then he decided to be an awful worker there. Um, I mean, I think we can put that to rest. I, I, I mean, here's the thing. I'm going to defend WF Hogan a little bit because I think that Hogan's a better worker in 85, 86, 87 than he is here. Because, yeah. like, I mean, the, the thing that nobody ever talks about with Hogan is that you watch a typical Hogan match, right, against uh, my, my favorite, say, a, a Ted versus Ted DiBiase versus Hulk Hogan, MSG, whatever. It'll be, he'll have his shine sequence, three minutes. Then it will be 10, 12 solid minutes of DiBiase going through his entire arsenal, suplex, pile driver, you know, power slam, million dollar dream, Hulk up, leg drop, right? That's, that's your 15 minute Hogan match. Um, so he's getting his ass kicked for about, 80% of it, right? And he's doing a phenomenal job of it. Where he doesn't do that here. He doesn't do any selling. Is that untrue? Have I romanticized Hogan in my mind? I'd go so far as to say he's better in 90 and 91, um, at least in matches. I mean, he has good performances against Earthquake, um, good performances against Flair, and good performances against Slaughter. Uh, and the same thing. He gets his ass kicked for a lot of the match. Uh, more so with Slaughter and Earthquake than with Flair, but yeah, there's more. There's more of it. There's more of it in '90 and '91 than there is in '83, '84 AWA. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I just think he's here. That's my. I'm not saying he's a better worker because that's not the case. But he just seems fresher. As in, it's not like the same routine over. Uh, I mean, Hulk had a routine, and yeah. uh, uh, but it just seems a little bit more fresher because you very rarely saw Hulk in six man tags in the WWF. Uh, because that's not where the money was. He's <laughs> the got, money was Hulk getting his butt kicked for five, ten minutes and hulking up, leg drop, go home happy. He's a he's got a rawness to him here. I guess we could say that there's a there's a kind of a raw a raw kind of energy to him and a violence, I guess, as well that he he would lack as the kind of edges softened a little bit. Um, the the other thing we should say is that he was crazy over. I mean, he's o- almost as over as uh, Daniel Bryan. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, I mean, I'm going to use yeah. that joke for at least another day. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was over, right? Oh, like, oh yeah, crazy, I mean, crazy. super yes. over. I don't know if you would. Uh, maybe the most over he's ever been. It's up there, certainly with his peak WWF years. We, we should we should uh, just before we we sign off here, we we should talk. I mean, the big talking point with AWA that most casual fans would know is the Bockwinkel kind of title switch that never was. 
should they have given him the title that night? Or at any point here? Um, I don't, was he always always going to go to New York? I don't think there's any way you could prevent him from going to New York, uh, whether you put the title on him or not. So you, you may as well keep it on Bockwinkle if that's going to be the case. Shoe, any thoughts? I mean, knowing that they went out of business, uh, I, I would have given him the title because at least, I mean, there's that scenario. We don't know if he would have gone to New York, but I think he would have gone to New York anyway. Uh, but I would have given him the title because he seemed over. I thought he, I felt he was the draw. I mean, Bockwinkle drew, don't get me wrong, but I mean, right there, he just, it's just seemed like it almost felt like the, uh, the example would be uh, you guys talking about the Lex Luger moment on the Crockett uh, show. Uh, where they blew it at Starcade, where you felt they should have given him the title, either at Great American Bash or at Starcade, mm-hmm. and I felt that so they probably should have given it to Hogan there, and then and then book him against Billy Robinson in his last match before jumping <laughs> ship. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Chad, you got any like should they give him the title? Do you think? Um, I think it's a very interesting thing to think about because of all the uh, surrounding areas, but I think I'm going to guess agree with uh, Peter more that. I do think he'd have went to a WWF either way, so I, I don't have a huge problem with them not giving him the title. I wish they'd have found a better finish for the actual match, but uh, but the decision to not give him the belt, I don't have a problem with. But I mean, it's not like the crowd jump off a cliff as soon as Hogan's gone. I mean, business seemed like pretty good through '84, from what I could see, um, and even into like '85. It's only like you can only really start no- noticing the fans sitting into chairs in like. 86 sort of time more would you agree with that i mean it, the promotion still seems quite hot in 84 our post hogan yeah 84 i would say but uh i mean i don't know if you'd say that him leaving was kind of the beginning of the end but uh that's that's you're still talking about six years of history so kind of tough to peg it on him yeah but i don't know it's one of those things where hindsight's everything though right how could you let that guy that guy who you know nationalized wrestling, you could have let you could have had him stay by giving him the belt. That's the kind of narrative we we've always yeah. Been told. I mean, I mean, for a simple sports comparison, it's like the Atlanta Falcons drafted Brett Favre and then let him go. And I mean, that's a little different because Favre was a disaster when he was with the Falcons and all that. And you did see a lot of potential in Hogan in the AWA, but it is that kind of thing where, in hindsight, it looks like an awful move, but. I guess you kind of had to be there, and I don't. I don't really want to definitively say whether it was the right or wrong move not to give him the belt. I think you could go either way and justify it. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I'm not even sure that he. Like I said it before, I not, I'm not sure if he needed the belt though. Like, did why did Hogan always need the belt? Like, I mean, in NWA style, you always had the babyface chasing, right? So you had the heel champ and the babyface chasing. I mean, is there any real reason why he could have? Couldn't have just carried on chasing Bockwinkle. That, that's still going to draw for you, right? Or eventually not... you'll, I mean, I... eventually you'll burn it out. Where you, where you, if you, if you let the fans down enough times when you think you're going to win the title, then you, you don't become a draw. You lose your drawing power. Which I think the fans, if, if the fans perceived Hogan as the best wrestler in the company, then you got to eventually put the belt on him. Um, I thought the NWA waited way too long to put the tag titles on the Road Warriors. Um, the logic was they didn't need the belts to be over, but 
everyone believed that they were the toughest team in the NWA, so why weren't they the champions? Uh, all you do is really kill off the tag belts, and you kill off your drawing act at the same time if you don't pay it off eventually. So it was Chicago in 87, basically. That, yeah. That, well, that's, we're talking about that effect. Over it, 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 maybe even before that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, look, they, I mean, they gave him the belts and turned him heel in 88, which was a utter disaster. Yeah, I mean, and we're seeing now even, uh, Chad, like the Royal Warriors have never really got it back. Like, it, Yeah, they don't feel, yeah, certainly in 1990, they don't feel special really at all. Um, I mean, their, their shining moment in 1990 is them showing up at SummerSlam and getting the big pop at the Spectrum crowd. Yeah, and we, we should say as well, I mean, one of the things that AWA do, um, like right the way through, not not even in the Hogan bit, but afterwards as well, is that whenever the whole, the title gets hold, held up or anything, they just give it to Bockwinkle. I don't, that's a really weird thing. Like, what, why couldn't they just have like a tournament in Rio de Rio or something? Like, like they, they explain they, when, when Ganya retired, they explained that a tournament would take uh, all these months of negotiations with all these wrestlers, so they it would take too long. So that's why they just gave it to the number one contender, who who always that, happened to be Bockwinkle. Yeah. <laughs> Because okay, I, I mean, I would have been a fan. I, I would have been pissed off as a fan, like, uh, and I would have probably been a Bockwinkle fan. <laughs> but even I would have been a, a little bit annoyed at just like giving it to him. And uh, how do they actually do it on the on the famous match? Like, how do they actually take the belt off Hogan? Is it over the top rope? Is that the rule? Yes. Is? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, he he had a good argument. He had a good argument. Can I hit on two things real quick? Yeah, sure. What do you guys think of the Freebirds on the set? I thought they looked like the Awful. worst I've ever seen the Freebirds since that until Awful. Jimmy Corbin. They were horrible, right? Yes, awful. Um, they were a terrible fit for the company. Um, this, this, the idea of these, you know, southern rock stars feuding with guys like the Crusher and Larry the Axe, it just didn't work. They were just a terrible fit, and the and the work was uh, pretty terrible too. Yeah, the worst I've ever seen them. Yeah, I'll ditto on that. Um, Terry Terry Gordy, unfortunately, I mean, I guess fortunately or not, when I watch the footage, Terry Gordy continuously is a guy that uh, kind of keeps dropping a little bit on my rankings because, uh, while I do think he has some great stuff, I'm not seeing a ton of consistency. And uh, the overall Freebird matches, I think this is the worst they've looked in any territory, maybe even uh, some of the late, like, 89, 90 WCW stuff, I think, is better than what we saw here. Yeah, well, this how old is Roberts at this point? Buddy Roberts? Yeah. Uh, he's not, I mean. He was, a, he was the oldest I mean, of the three. 45. Yeah. But he's still, I mean, even in 1988, when they go back and uh, run that feud in world class, he's a lot better. I mean, those matches are a lot better than here. Yeah. yeah. yeah did, did anybody else got any, like, worst workers for the set that they want to? mention now that those guys jump out as being uh being particularly bad obviously uh there's uh brad Rannigans, of course so. uh <laughs> yeah that's the other thing i wanted to ask what do you guys think of the martel reagan's match i i liked it and i, I hear you guys shit, i hear you part of shit on it quite a bit <laughs> i mean i've uh i i somehow have a rep for doing that but uh you know dvdr's down so i can't remember what i said <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, I can imagine I didn't like it very much. There was a lot of lying around on the map and uh, clean, kind of amateur 
Dory Funk Jr. style boredom for me. <laughs> I just didn't like. I didn't like anything about Brad Rannigan's. I thought he was just like a like a crap version of Bob Backlund, and I don't even like Backlund that much so far. So. <laughs> I had the match at 69. I, I thought it was fine. Uh, I didn't think it was really a high-end match. Um, objectively speaking, I don't think it was successful at all because the crowd just was not buying what they were selling. I like the mat work, um, but it had another really terrible finish that does nothing for Martell. Ends in a, uh, I think Rangans gets injured and Martell has it declared a no contest. That kind of finish would work in a world of sport over in England, but uh, it doesn't work here. It just makes Martell look like a chump. I guess one of my problems with uh, Rannigan's for me is that I didn't buy him in the slot that he was often put in, you know, challenging for the title. Or He seemed like a lower card guy, so he shouldn't really be going up against Martel or Bocco. It, it only would have worked in the in Minnesota where he was a local boy, Olympian and all that. Um, I don't think Rannigan's would have gotten a push anywhere else. Yeah, it's true. Chad, did you like that? Um, yeah, I had that one ranked uh, like 109. It's uh, I thought it was kind of exhibition-y. Uh, I, I am kind of a mark for good mat work. I thought the work was solid here and kind of uh, very looked very amateur wrestling-ish in a lot of ways. But uh, yeah, the match didn't really do it for me. And like uh, Peter said, the finish was pretty bad and did nobody any favors. Any, any other comments? Yeah, I, I really like Pat Tanaka at the end of the set. Uh, I thought he was cool. Um, I, I don't know like how good the matches were, but the guy is cool. <laughs> he he had me. I thought he was one of the cooler guys in AWA. Am I alone? Uh, I think I think Larry the Axe Hennig might actually be one of the great lost workers of all time. He doesn't look great on this set, but considering how old and banged up he probably was, um, and how big he was, um, I expected him to be like a crusher type, just completely immobile. But um, I'm, I get the feeling that in you know 1968 he was a hell of a worker. Did anyone else get that feeling? You may be on your own there. Uh, I actually I, I didn't see it in, on this, but I'm uh I get I'm, I'm part of the secret forum who actually gets to look at uh, gets to comment on some of these matches before the sets come out. And I remember a Portland match. I was like uh, Larry the Axe and Kurt. They worked uh, uh, Buddy Rose and uh, and and Colonel De Beers, uh, whatever his name was before De Beers. And uh, I was like, I'm surprised Larry the Axe didn't pay Vern to bring these guys up because they made Larry the Axe look like a million bucks on the set. Yeah, I, I, I just remember him like being like standing outside a lot waiting for the hot tag. I don't really remember him doing a lot. On the- I think he took some pretty good bumps, as I recall. I mean, he didn't do much, but again, considering how old and how big he was, considering he was about 50 years old, um, I could buy him living up to his uh, reputation uh, back in his days teaming with like Harley Race. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah, me too. All right, any oh. any other comments, hey. you guys? Well, I've stumped for John Studd. I've stumped for uh, Larry Hennig. Who else can I uh, can I push <laughs> here? Uh, what are the great lost Mitch Snow matches of all time? <laughs> <laughs> well, what is the Ray Stevens was a guy we saw a little bit of, like. Um, I tell you what, let's do a little bit on Stevens. And uh, we can. I you said some things that interested me about Wahoo, Chad. I don't think we talked about him. We saw a ton of Wahoo on this set. Um, Ray Stevens didn't is a guy who is like by old school guys is always pimped as like a great worker. Like Ric Flair, Nick Bockwinkel, all of these guys will say Ray Stevens, one of the all time greats. 
Um, did any part of any one of his matches suggest that to you? No. <laughs> not, not not here and not his work with the WWF or uh, Crockett either. I mean, can a guy drop that much? Like, so the only thing I can imagine is like, I don't know, you watch Flair in 2003 and you don't have the 80s. Can you tell from that that Flair was once great? I don't know. I mean, I could tell that Pat Patterson was once great and um, watching him in the early 80s. So um, yeah. I, I don't really act between what a, another worker thinks of as a great worker and what we, the fans, think of as a great worker. Um, it's you know, sort of like how Kane always gets praised because he's so safe and he's so easy to work with. I think Stevens uh, was like that too. Plus, he was his big reputation was for crazy bumping and all that was in the 1960s uh, where we don't have footage. Uh, it's possible he just doesn't have a lot besides bumping and being safe and easy. Any any other thoughts on Stevens? I mean, I've got a I've got another little theory as well. I I agree with that. In fact, I probably wrote it somewhere that I think it's a disconnect between workers and fans. But I also think that with Stevens, um, he may be a victim of his own legacy. Like so, like probably like Ric Flair is the ultimate Ray Stevens style worker or something. But since we've all seen like every Flair match, Stevens has got nothing to hold to it. But like. If you can imagine like 60s matches where the guys are just laying around, you know, I, I, and I try to mean that respectfully, but there was a lot of like, it was much slower style. There was a lot less movement. Um, and Stevens is bumping around all over the place. They're going to think he's great, right? So like it's kind of context as well. Do you agree with that? I don't know. That's, that, you, that, are you calling Ray Stevens the Davy Richards of his era? Oof. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> well, I, 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 I just think that, like, against the backdrop of, you know, against the backdrop of, like, you know, Carl Gotch or whoever was there, you know, stretching guys and laying on the laying on the mat for 20 minutes before, like, doing, you know, one knee drop or something. And I know I'm stereotyping, but I, I can imagine the 60s style was a little bit like that from having seen 70s matches. If he is working a bit like Ric Flair... You know, you could up here, up down, everywhere. Like it, the Ric Flair's match has got a lot of movement in it. If Stevens did anything like that, you know, the bump over the turnbuckle, all of those different things. If he if he's being like that, then it's going to stand out in that context. That's that's my only thought. Yeah, from what I've seen of him, I mean, on this set, it was blah. His WWF stuff it was you know, he was totally tanked. Uh, now the Crockett stuff, he he still was his body was shot, but he still his mind was still there, and you can still see him working some psychology. But like it was, most of it, was, I saw him, saw him, and it was his tag matches, him him and Snuka versus Steamboat and Youngblood, and he was by far the worst of the of the four. Okay, okay, so Chad, you last thing then, you, you said something that interested me about Wahoo. Um, you think that he was kind of gone uh, by the point that he reemerges in the late 80s um will and uh johnny sorrow um they were pretty high on wahoo in that period marking out for his big chops and whatnot uh anything else to say about him i mean do you think the wahoo here is um worse than the wahoo that we've seen in crockett for example the little that the little that we've seen of him yeah, I mean, I think Wahoo is a uh, type of guy where we know he was very prominent in the 70s. Uh, the footage we've seen of the 70s, uh, there's not a ton of it, but what we've seen is very good. 
1983, uh, of course, the battle with uh, Bachwinkle I thought was tremendous. And then his stuff in, like, at Starcade I thought was very good. And then I think just uh, once he comes back in 87 and 88, he still has the psychology down uh, to a certain degree. But I just don't think he has kind of the physicality to keep uh, to keep it up, I guess I'd say. You know, that uh, Bachwinkle match is probably my number two or three. I think I gave that a star, which is a. I didn't give the uh, the cage match. The I think my the only three matches I gave a star to were the uh, the hour long, Wahoo versus Bok and um, the Bloodbath. Yeah, well, that's my number. Uh, Wahoo versus Bok is my number four. So I mean, I do think those will probably end up being the top three matches. That one, the uh, Bloodbath, and then the hour long. Well, what's an A star anyway? <laughs> it's a it's a five star. I, I, it's, I, it's, I, a, it's a par <laughs> thing. That's all you can say. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why I uh, I don't know why I switched the letter ratings. It's just uh, I find it easier to think in like bands than. But okay, that's, that's that, a look you come out with rating matches for dummies by Parv. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's because I don't like um, it's because I don't like three quarter stars. I think they're pretentious, so I go with the letter ratings instead. <laughs> A star is not pretentious. <laughs> you, you, you could say uh, Parv is the Ray Stevens of uh, ranking matches. I want to be like who's that guy? That Damien Sandow. I want to be the Damien yeah. Sandow. <laughs> Don't say you're welcome after every star rating. <laughs> um, any thoughts on a Wahoo uh, PF? Yeah. Oh. Uh uh, let's see. I had that uh, Bachwinkle match. I think at number six, which I might 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 actually make me the low voter on that. Uh, yeah, he did have some psychology left uh, in the late '80s, and I really did like um, one of the Hennig matches. Uh, which one is it? The twelve twenty seven eighty seven, which I had at uh, twenty eight. I like the strap match, okay, but again, another stupid finish. Uh, the Manny Fernandez stuff was pretty underwhelming, and the a lot of the uh, other late '80s stuff was pretty underwhelming too. I haven't seen a lot of Wahoo and Crockett, so I don't really have a comparison there. But uh, he definitely wore down as the '80s wore on. Yeah, I mean they, they were big on those. Uh, I, I guess Johnny Sorrow and Manny Fernandez is always going to be uh, like he's always going to be high on that, right? But they seem to like those matches a hell of a lot more than I did on the on the party podcasts. I, I, I do think that Hennig match was a carry job, though. Would you agree? It, it felt like a carry job to me. It felt like Hennig was the guy who was making that match. Like uh, yeah, I, can, I can go along with that. True. Any uh, thoughts on Wahoo? Yeah, I thought, I mean, I, I still enjoyed him a lot on the set. Um, obviously, the ground, his crown jewel was the Bachwinkle match early, uh, uh, the handheld one. I, I enjoyed the Wahoo versus Manny seven six eighty eight match. I thought that was like a hard hitting, just two two studs just hitting each other. Uh, Manny Fernandez is one of those guys uh, who's uh, just a tremendous worker who really doesn't get up do how good he is. Um, was that the handheld? True, uh, or was yes. that the other? One? That was the handheld. Yes. Yeah. Oh, interesting. No, the Bachman one was the handheld. I'm talking the. No, the 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 Manny uh, the Manny. No, that. Uh, Seven six eighty eight. No, oh, uh, yeah. there was who Manny one that that was a handheld that was just horrible. Yeah. That's not the one I'm talking about. That's probably bottom five for me as well. That one. Yeah, yeah that was a the, pretty uh... bad one. The finish this was uh, an abortion. It just you didn't know what was going on. 
uh, and I enjoyed his. I enjoyed one of his matches with Hennig, but I, I thought the strap matches were kind of underwhelming. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think I'm generally with you, Chad. That he he seems to have lost a step by the time he comes back. Um, but he, you know, he's de- decent as an old as an older guy. What did everybody have for 150? If they've decided on one yet. Oh, I know what Chad's is. Yeah, Cherry Martel versus Debbie the Killer Tomato uh, is my 150. Um, I, I did not like that match at all. I thought, uh, I, I mean, I'll say to me, the uh, the uh, Brie Bella versus Natalia match from SummerSlam, I think, was better than that match, just as a template. Mine is Wahoo and Zinc against uh, Manny and Larry Zabisco, which was pretty much summed up uh, where the AWA was in 1989. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't a good place. That's, that's what I have, the last two. That was a yeah. horrendous, man. You have that last two? True? <laughs> yeah. Most <laughs> rated match I have. Um, I'm, I am shocked that by all three of you because the worst match I've ever seen. Well, it's probably Regal versus... Fucking fuck zoom off! <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ! I'd, I'd rather like um, hammer nails into my eyes than watch that match again. What, why? Why is? Why isn't that bottom for you guys? That's because I rated that match before I found out about Buck Zoomhoff's uh, personal proclivities. Oh, right. I, okay. I'm not going to go back and change it. Well, that that didn't even come into my uh, <laughs> F rating there. He'd, he'd have gone through the. You can't go lower than F. What's a U? Unclassified, <laughs> um, but there yeah, rank bottom one fifteen. <laughs> all right, guys, but we shouldn't uh, end on a bad note. The AWA is good, right? It's uh, 140 decent matches and ten pretty bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> is that about right? <laughs> yeah, I think I think uh, Will Dylan and Chris Z did a real good job putting it together. Uh, shuffling through all that footage, uh, and, I, and like they said, I mean, it's just—I think there's a lot of—I mean, I think it's going to be a wildly diverse uh, set where people like different things because of different reasonings and stuff like that. And, then, and so I'm curious to see how everything looks when all the ballots are tallied up. Uh, for a territory that sort of has a reputation as being this sort of stodgy, uh, old-school uh, promotion, uh, some of that's deserved, but there's more variety uh, in this set than uh, I think the AWA has a reputation for. Um, mat work, more crazy brawls, some gimmick matches uh, that the AWA wasn't necessarily known for, but had a lot of. I, I, that was I, enjoyable. I will say, I had a ton of uh, matches at the A- minus uh, rating. That's probably like a Four and a half or something, four and a quarter. I don't know. Um, <laughs> probably, it's probably well, there it's, we go. It's around there, right? Four and a quarter, four and a half. Um, so, I mean, I had a ton of matches in that kind of range. I thought that there were maybe as many in that range as on the as on the All Japan set, and that is something I wouldn't have expected. I, I don't think there are that many like absolute bona fide five star matches, but there are a ton in the four star range. That's what I thought. Would you agree with that? Did you? I mean, did you have uh, star ratings for this, Chad? Uh, yeah, I did. Um, I mean, I had a, I had one five star match, a couple four and three quarters, and then everything flows from there. But uh, let me see if I can get to what a gauge. I mean, I would say that it certainly had probably 
uh, even a match like my number 55 is the Bockwinkle versus Flair match from 117.86. And right below that is that uh, Sherry Martell teaming with the Summers and Rockers versus the Midnight uh, Summers and Rose versus the Midnight Rockers match. So that's probably my uh, baseline for around four stars around there. So that's 56 matches deep. Certainly oh. nothing to sneeze at. And out of interest, you can you remember how deep your old Japan four star matches went? Uh, I can't, but uh, I mean, I mean they're different sets. I think uh, this set to me is all about the tag wrestling, uh, discovering some new people um, that you're not certain with. But uh, they're both they both have a lot to offer. Yeah, but PF, did you do star ratings? I- I do uh, pitchfork ratings, like at pitchfork.com. It's rated technically one to ten, but it's like nine point five, eight point five. <laughs> Sorry, like I shouldn't. Do you really do that? Yes. <laughs> that's because that's you, that's the oh, that's, for, that's legit, Pete. <laughs> so oh, I'm going, I'm going to stick for a star, and he does pitchfork ratings. Uh, that's well, that's because that's because it's the easiest to sort in an Excel spreadsheet. I I put it all in a, a spreadsheet and sort it by rating. Um, right. That's the easiest way for me to do it. So I've thought about doing that because uh, I read Pitchfork all the time. But uh, yeah. <laughs> so how many are in the 8.0 plus range? Uh, let's see. Uh, the, the, I've t- my number 36 match is rated at eight. Uh, that's Martel versus Saito. So there you go. I don't get under five until uh, let's see, till uh, number 129. And as a comparison point, can you remember if all Japan? I mean, like I didn't. I'll put it this way: I didn't feel like that that all Japan had so much more quality than AWA, which is what I'd have expected going in. Well, uh, I te- on these eighty sets, I tend to rate matches against other matches on the set rather than yeah. Because my my number one match on the AWA, I gave a nine point nine, and my number one all Japan match, I gave a nine point six so i mean it's i guess it's just a tougher critic on all japan just because the work is better right but i mean uh would you agree with that overall point like i what i'm trying to say is that it's not like if you take the top 150 matches from uh from awa and the top 150 from all japan for the for the same decade it's not like all japan is absolutely killing awa would you agree with that it's not like so much better yeah, no, I'd I agree think, with that. I mean, I think, I think for certain I, people, I, they I, would prefer I, this one. Right, yeah. Go ahead. Shoot. Sorry, shoot. I'm sorry. No, go, go on. I, I would just say I think for certain people, like maybe a, a Dylan, he prefers this set. So. I think All Japan would probably crush the AWA on depth, even getting past the footage issue. Um, the 500th best All Japan match is probably a lot better than the 500th best AWA match, but uh, top end versus top end, it's... All Japan's better, I think, but not a ton better. Right. And yeah, I thought the All Japan, uh, the high end stuff was better. Uh, but I, but it, what the All Japan set would kind of burn me a little bit was there's so many tag matches on the All Japan set. And it's the same tag match again, and again, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it, like once you've seen like your tenth version of Jumbo and. Uh, t- or was it Jumbo Tenryo versus Yatsu and uh, Choshu? In any in any combination, they switch around after a while, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. As, the, as the AWA set went along, you got more and more random people showing up, and uh, yeah. as the All Japan set went along, their roster sort of uh, 
solidified a little bit more. So you got less variety as you went along. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's uh, it's been fun. Thanks uh, a lot, thanks, guys. Pete and Pete. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks, guys, for having me. been watching All-Star Wrestling, produced by the Minneapolis Boxing and Wrestling Club in wrestling arenas throughout the world. Executive producer, Vern Gagne. has been an American Wrestling Association sports presentation.